The opinions expressed by guests of this show are their own and do not necessarily align with those of us here at the Animal Soulmates podcast. One spouse shared how, I guess multiple spouses shared this in a variety of different ways, but essentially, you know, we have kids and prior to the service dog, you know, my spouse couldn't really leave the house um, to support our kids. And now, you know, my partner and their service dog are coming to soccer games and they're coming to school plays and they're coming to graduations and, you know, they're just able to be present in their family's lives and be present in their own life, really, in ways that, you know, people had really written off and thought would never happen again. And it's kind of those stories of joy and hope and the partnerships that really kind of drive uh, why we do this and the potential that these interventions have to really help people, which is really, really important. Welcome to the Animal Soulmates podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Abby Viscardi. I'm an animal welfare scientist and, more importantly, an obsessed dog mom. I believe that the unconditional love and connection that we share with our animals is more powerful than we realize. This podcast will honor the stories of these amazing creatures that have walked with us and changed our lives forever. So join me, and together we will explore the true power of the human-animal bond. Welcome back to another episode of the Animal Soulmates podcast. With me this week as co-host is my blind pity boy, Dusty, who will actually not be featured in the reel for this episode because he ended up rolling off the bed that my co-hosts lie on during a recording. And because he resembles a potato more than a dog, he couldn't quite figure out how to get back up on the bed. So we ended up kind of sitting by my feet for most of the time we recorded this episode. But hopefully things work out a little better for him the next time that he co-hosts. This episode is a little different than the last two, as I'm chatting with a scientist who studies human-animal interactions. Dr. Leanne Neiferth is an assistant professor in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Purdue University. Her work is focused on understanding the impact that animal-assisted interventions like service dogs have on human health and well-being, and also teasing out what the benefits are for the animal, so really putting the science behind the human-animal bond. Primarily, her work is focused on the benefits of service dogs for veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and the positive effects of equine-assisted therapy for individuals who have experienced trauma. We do touch on suicide and suicidal ideation among veterans, and we talk about PTSD symptomology, so please take care while listening to this episode. I really hope that you like nerding out on the human-animal bond science as much as I do, and please enjoy episode three, A Scientist Studying Human-Canine and Human-Equine Interactions with Dr. Leanne Neiferth. So my name is Dr. Leanne Neiforth. I'm an assistant professor of human-animal interaction at the Center for the Human-Animal Bond at Purdue University College of Veterinary Medicine. I did my PhD at Purdue in human-animal interaction, so I have an interdisciplinary-based PhD and have loved kind of putting the science behind the stories. So we all have anecdotes about how we've interacted with animals or how we've watched other people interact with animals. Um, And my goal as a scientist is to put the science and the data behind those personal stories. Awesome. So I think a good place for us to start today would be to define what is the human-animal bond or what are human-animal interactions? What is it specifically that you're looking at defining? So that's a great question. And I think the way I could answer it 
uh, is really endless, which is part of what really draws me um, into studying it and understanding it further. So the way that I define human-animal interaction is literally any interaction that a human has with an animal. And that may seem very simple, but it can actually be very complex. It can encompass things such as, you know, us walking down the driveway to get the mail and seeing a squirrel or a chipmunk or a bird. Um, it can encompass, you know, our pets that we share our homes with, whether that be a dog or a cat or a bird or a rodent or whoever the pet is that you share your home with. Or it can encompass more highly skilled interventions or highly trained animals, um, including service dogs, uh, which are task trained to mitigate different symptoms of different mental health concerns, or equine assisted interventions, which is where a horse is incorporated into a mental health intervention with a specific goal or purpose in mind. So in terms of human animal interactions, it can really encompass anything from the bird outside to a highly trained service animal. And my goal as a scientist is to really kind of dig into multiple interactions that we have with animals. So my work currently focuses on human canine interactions and then human equine interactions, as well as some broader theory-based applications of human-animal interaction, such as how does diversity, equity, and inclusion play into animal-assisted interventions, or how does the COVID-19 pandemic, how did we kind of partner with our pets to preserve our well-being during that time? So you touched on something that I really wanted to just highlight before we get into your fantastic research. You talked about service animals, and I hear the term service animals, therapy animal, and emotional support animal. These terms are kind of used interchangeably at times. Can you kind of just talk about the distinction between those three categories of animals that we use today? I would be delighted to. This is a common misconception. Of yes. Important um, that we understand. So, a service animal, which defined by ADA, so the American Disability Act law, can be a dog or a miniature horse. These service animals are task trained to mitigate specific symptoms of a specific individual's diagnosis. So, these diagnoses can vary and the tasks can vary, but the part that makes it a service animal are these tasks. Therapy animals are different in that they are paired with a handler that brings them into spaces to serve a therapeutic purpose. So this would be something like bringing a dog into a nursing home where the handler is the, the dog's owner and they've gone through training to provide therapeutic services to a different population. So those dogs are not task trained. And then an emotional support animal um, scientifically is not much different different than a pet, except for the fact that an emotional support label enables an individual to bring the animal into housing um, that doesn't allow pets. So those three, it's really important to keep them separate, namely in the name of protecting service animals. So the best example I have of this is I do a lot of work with veterans with PTSD who are matched with service dogs. Um, and one of the symptoms of PTSD, there are quite a few, but um, importantly, you know, there's this hypervigilance and this feeling that you don't really want to leave your home because when you go out into crowded spaces or other kind of public spaces, it can be really challenging. So a lot of times veterans are paired with their dogs um, and their dogs are trained specific tasks to be able to facilitate the veteran going out into public spaces. So imagine working up the courage to leave your home with your new service dog after potentially months, if not years of staying in places that you're comfortable, but branching out and then going to public, turning the corner of a grocery store, for example, and having someone with a fake service dog attack your dog, essentially. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a huge example that's really kind of pushing the limits on it. But it's a really great way to think about kind of the importance of not having fake service animals in a way to protect not only the physical safety of people, but also the emotional safety. Because, you know, that veteran worked up the courage to leave their home with their dog and now, you know, has to deal with not only the physical ramifications if something were to happen, but also the mental ramifications of you know, oh, I finally worked up the courage and look where it got me. Yeah, I think that's something that as members of the public, you know, that that's really important. And thinking about kind of, you know, bringing animals into public spaces that shouldn't be in public spaces or aren't service animals, but saying there are, they are, I think, again, it's, it's a, it's a protective thing for people that really need the service animals. It's also important to note that there is not 
an official certification or training program for service animals. So asking for a certificate or registration, that doesn't exist. So that's also important to know that, you know, if you have a registered service animal, there's not like a one registry, for example, for the U.S. So there's no way to do it. It's, it's really the tasks that kind of separate them from other dogs. So then as a, a member of the public, how do we know what differentiates a service dog versus somebody who's just bringing their dog into a grocery store or something like that? You might not, to be completely oh, honest. Okay. I mean, there are telltale signs, right? So service dogs would never, for example, urinate or defecate in public. They won't react to stimuli. So they won't react to another dog or a horse or a loud noise or, you know, maybe not a grocery store, but <laughs> they'll be well-behaved. They'll be very obedient. They won't be pulling their owner around. You know, they'll be listening intently to what their owner is saying, even if their owner isn't saying anything at all. A lot of dogs, for example, like diabetic alert service dogs um, are paying attention to blood sugar. So their owner might not be giving them any cues, but they are intently paying attention. These dogs settle really easily. So they know that when the owner stops, you know, we stop and settle. Pet dogs typically aren't that obedient. So that's typically a way for a member of the public to know. But there are two questions um, that business owners can ask of an individual with an animal that they think is a service animal to determine um, if they're welcome in that space. And those questions are, is that animal a service animal? And what tasks is that animal trained to do? They are not allowed to ask for registration, certification, a demo, why they have the dog. It is only those two questions, which is, again, really important to recognize because you don't want to have an invasion of privacy or really kind of, again, that the current, going back to the veteran example, you know, if they work up the courage to leave their home, you know, it is an indicator that, you know, there is a potential disability present, right? So PTSD is an invisible disability. Um, and if you go out into public with a service dog, you know, that's kind of a really cute flashing, you know, golden retriever puppy. People are going to be like, oh, you know, why do you have a service dog? Which is a really um, inappropriate question. Also, vests are not required. So just because a dog doesn't have a vest on does not mean that they are not um, a legitimate service dog. So again, kind of going back to those two questions, is it a service dog and what tasks are they trained to do are the only um, two questions to be asked. Now, if the dog is causing problems and, for example, you know, going to the bathroom inside of the store, the store owner can, of course, ask them to leave. But there's a an interesting line there of how much they can ask in order to fully determine um, if the dog is a legitimate service dog or not. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. So something that you had talked about is that the two species that can be service animals are dogs and miniature ponies or miniature horses. Mm -hmm. What is it about those two species that make them so inclined to work with us in this sort of way? Is it the way that we've domesticated them? Is it just this human-animal bond or this attachment that we have with these two species? What is it about them? That's a great question. Um, and that's a question that I would love to know the answer to. <laughs> Um, I don't think that we have enough science to be able to say, you know, this is why. What's especially fascinating is that service horses or service miniature horses are covered under the law. However, there is no research, to my knowledge, looking at the effects of a service miniature horse on anything. So they have eluded the research <laughs> completely. Wow. My knowledge, there are not very many of them um, in the U.S. I know there are a few uh, simply because of their presence on social media, uh, which I think is awesome um, that they do exist in the real world. But that's something for me that um, honestly, I hope to do a future project looking at miniature service horses um, because, again, they're completely absent from the research literature, at least to what I can find kind of in the, the mental health, physical health realm. Wow. Uh, it's really interesting. I think the draw with adding miniature horses to the law was that they live longer than a service dog. Of course, increase the amount of working time that they have and be a better investment. But there has been no research, which also kind of brings to light, you know, the welfare concerns or potential welfare concerns in that I think, you know, as a human animal interaction researcher, when we talk about human animal interaction, we talk 
probably 90% of the time about humans and only 10% of the time about the animals. And, you know, that's a hyphenated word. So it should be about 50-50. And I think that's something that as a researcher, I always think about is the animal side and, you know, what what does this mean for the animal? And, you know, we have to be careful about the anthropomorphize um, because we really don't don't know um, what the animal is thinking in the moment. Um, But there are ways that we can measure stress, for example, or look at body language to understand kind of how the animal is responding to a certain um, situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because as an animal welfare researcher, that is something that I've noticed has been a bit of a gap in the literature of the human-animal bond as we see a ton of benefits to the human health and human welfare, but there isn't necessarily the same robust literature to support the benefits to the animal as well. So I think that that's definitely getting more attention, but we we certainly need to to spend a little bit more time in that space as well. For sure. Yeah, there's there's a lot of growth to be had there um, in terms of measuring uh, what's appropriate to measure, number one, but measuring something to begin with. Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So a question that I had too about the breeds of dogs that we're using mainly as service dogs. So I see a lot of German Shepherds, Golden Retrievers, Labrador Retrievers. Is there, I guess, restrictions on what breed can be used as a service animal? Why are we selecting these breeds of dog versus other breeds? Can you talk about that a little bit? Again, a great question. Um, And that depends on the organization uh, that you are getting your dog from. So there are organizations that have purpose-bred dogs, uh, which are typically lab or golden retriever or lab retriever mixes. And then there are other organizations that incorporate um, shelter dogs and donated dogs. So those dogs can be really anything along the span. The only kind of breed restriction I would say is that if you need a mobility dog, so a dog to help, you know, you stand up or you walk around, obviously you need a bigger dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, any of the organizations that do pull from the shelters, there's height restrictions, kind of how tall the dog needs to be in order to best fulfill that role. Obviously you wouldn't want like a chihuahua in a mobility dog role, but in terms of research on breeds. And that's something that is ongoing. I think hopefully in the next five to 10 years, we'll have some insight into that. But for now, um, the research is really minimal, if not non-existent in terms of understanding kind of the breeds. Dr. Maggie O'Hare's lab at University of Arizona and Dr. Evan McLean at the Arizona Canine Cognition Center are pioneers in that field right now, kind of really understanding how dog characteristics play into the service dog outcomes for the humans involved. So they've looked at temperament, for example, the temperament of the dog pre-training and pre-placement plays into PTSD outcomes. So that is a a pioneering part of our field. I mean, hopefully, again, in the next five to 10 years, we'll have some more answers on that. I think generally, too, this is important to know, as a field, human-animal interaction and human-animal bond um, is quite young. It really began to be a significant focus back in the 80s. Um, And there are centers for the human-animal bond at universities across the country. The first was at UPenn, um, and that was in the early 80s. And then uh, Purdue University was second on that list, um, again, in the 80s. So if you think about kind of the length of time we've been studying physics or chemistry or biology, and then the length of time that we've really started to dive into the human-animal bond, it's really remarkable to think about how how young the field is in terms of kind of the history behind it. But with that said, I will say in the last you know, five to 10 years, the amount of research has exponentially increased. So I recently did a study, a systematic review of animal assisted interventions for autism spectrum disorder. And this was the third of its kind. So there were two done prior. The first one had a certain number of studies. The second kind of doubled that initial number and the third doubled the second. But the difference in years between the studies, the first one was of all time up until that point, And that was about 2015. So that was about probably, you know, 20 years of data data for human-animal interaction. The second one was a five-year follow-up, and then it, or a three-year follow-up, and then a five-year follow-up. So in five years, we doubled the amount of literature in animal-assisted interventions for autism spectrum disorder. And that is pretty fascinating to think about how quickly the field is growing, but at the same time, you know, kind of going back to 
what are we measuring in terms of including the animal or other kind of measures of interest, it's important to think about the rigor of the studies and how the rigor of our data needs to match the exponential growth that we're having. So we're finding um, within systematic reviews, at least that I've been a part of, that the field is growing very quickly, but there's still room for growth, though it is improving for rigorous methodology. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important to note that it's not just about quantity of data that we need. We need really good quality data as well. Right. And those studies take time. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And they're not easy because we can't just go up to the dogs and ask them. How are you enjoying this interaction? (laughs) Good, bad, not so good. So I wanted to spend some time on your research with veterans and PTSD. As I talked about, I have pages of questions to ask you because this is a new field for me to look into. And I love getting nerdy with science and seeing what the literature says. So if you could maybe start by just talking about what is PTSD? What are the symptoms of PTSD? And then kind of what is the scope of the kind of the scale and or scope of the problem of veterans that are dealing with PTSD? So PTSD can occur, so it does not always occur, uh, when an individual experiences a traumatic event. And specific symptoms can kind of vary in terms of how severe they are, dependent upon the individual that experiences them. And even if two people experience the same traumatic event, they may have vastly different responses to it and therefore kind of either have different symptoms that are stronger within their PTSD diagnosis, or one may have PTSD and the other may not. So PTSD symptoms include things like intrusion uh, symptoms, which are kind of repeated thoughts or involuntary memories and kind of distressing uh, memories. Avoidance. So that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with the veteran avoiding public spaces because crowds, for example, um, might be something um, that's an aversive stimulus. They can have alterations in cognition and mood. So they can have an inability to remember certain things. There's some anger sometimes, but just ultimately an alteration in that cognition and mood. And they can also have alterations in uh, arousal and reactivity. So that often comes Uh, in hypervigilance and just being super aware of the surroundings, um, having trouble sleeping or concentrating or kind of being easily startled with uh, various stimuli from the environment. And about the number of veterans that have PTSD um, varies uh, dependent upon where you look, um, but it's estimated that about 11 to 20 percent of veterans returning from um, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom um, demonstrate PTSD symptoms. Um, Additionally, um, it's important to note that PTSD can be comorbid with some other mental health concerns as well, such as depression or anxiety. Um, And in that, a lot of veterans that have PTSD also have traumatic brain injuries. In comparing kind of the recent conflicts to earlier conflicts, there's actually a higher percentage of veterans that are returning with traumatic brain injuries simply because of the technological changes um, that have occurred in terms of combat. So veterans that are coming back, you know, I mentioned kind of 11 to 20 percent. That can be even higher depending upon what paper um, you read and kind of who they're looking at. But these veterans come home. Mental health um, in the military is highly stigmatized. So many veterans who are returning don't uh, seek out treatment. And for those that do, so about 50% seek out treatment. And for those that do, about 50% of them drop out of treatment. Those that actually stick through treatment, it could be 60% of them still have their diagnosis at the end of the gold standard treatment options. So there are gold standard evidence-based treatment options for PTSD, exposure therapy being the most well-researched kind of the gold standard um, for PTSD treatment. But those statistics I just shared are for veterans that go through that. So what we see is really a need for alternative options to be used in conjunction with evidence-based options. So when we talk about incorporating animal-assisted interventions broadly into mental health treatment, um, it's important that we think about integrating them as an integrative and complementary health option, it's called, instead of kind of making them standalone treatment options. Um, And if you look in the literature, many of the current research articles um, describe kind of these animal-assisted interventions as complementary to the more standard, um, currently evidence-based options. Yeah. So in some of the reading I was doing, one of the things that really stuck out to me is 
the conversation about PTSD being a leading cause of impaired quality of life and functioning among veterans. And that's from like qualitative survey-based studies that found that. And then also from a 2022 report by the Department of Veteran Affairs that 17 veterans take their own lives per day and PTSD increases their risk significantly of suicide. That statistic just absolutely floored me. I had no idea the scale of this issue. Yes, it's something that 100% needs to be addressed. But yes, that is the uh, correct rate of veteran suicide. It's more than double that of civilian adults. It's something that in terms of our service dog studies, we actually have a measure for suicidal ideation prior to being placed with a service dog and after. Um, and those results uh, should be coming out soon. Um, but that's something that you know, we really have an opportunity with animal assisted interventions and just interventions in general to really make a difference um, in someone's life, especially because, you know, as a complementary integrative health option, you know, people aren't coming to a service dog first, right? They're going, you know, to their VA, to their psychiatrist, to their, you know, just normal medical provider and going through kind of all the different options. And then as a last resort, often reverting to, oh, well, you know, what about a service dog or mm. what about an assisted intervention of some kind? So yes, there is a great need um, to develop further treatment options for PTSD specifically in the context of veterans, um, but also outside of veterans in non-combat or non you know, military-related PTSD um, as well. And the literature there is also minimal. So most of the work in animal-assisted interventions for PTSD or service dogs for PTSD has occurred in combat veterans. And, you know, PTSD can be from combat or it can be from military sexual trauma or other types of um, trauma within military service. So it's important to, you know, think about all of the different pieces that play into the puzzle to really kind of develop these interventions that can really help people. And I think too, it's important to consider that many veterans or many humans in general, you know, exist within a family system, exist within a community. Um, and there's these uh, different circles where people, you know, live their daily lives. Um, so often when one individual is diagnosed with a mental health concern or experiences something traumatic, um, it really has a ripple effect to the individuals around them. So considering, you know, how we can develop these interventions to not only address the the person who's experienced the trauma's symptoms, which of course is really critical and important, but also address kind of the ripple effects um, on a partner, or spouse, or a child, typically within that smaller circle, but even even broader than that. And animal assisted interventions have kind of the opportunity to do just that, um, mm -hmm. and to kind of the whole the whole line, um, which is really critical in terms of you know developing a, a supportive. Um, environment and a space where the mental health of really everyone involved is at the forefront, especially in crises like we're experiencing right now. And that's some work that you've looked at, right? Looking at the impact on the the spouses of veterans suffering from PTSD. So a lot of my dissertation focused on um, the impact of a service dog on military spouses or partners. I specify spouses or, spouses or partners because in order to be included, they just had to be cohabitating with the veteran. So that's important to note. But yes, yeah, so we looked at, um, you know, when you bring a service dog into the home, though the dog is trained to do specific tasks for the veteran themselves, the dog obviously interacts um, with all members of the family and can create interesting situations across the board. Um, and with that, early on service dog providers, and this has changed, but early on service dog providers, you know, would encourage spouses and family members not to interact with the dog um, because the dog was there for the veteran and only for the veteran. And as you can imagine, that is quite a tall order. Um, for example, if you have little kids and, you know, mom brings home her new service dog, who's a very cute golden retriever, who just, you know, adds a different dynamic to the family. Um, and, you know, telling your child, oh, don't pet mom's dog, she's working, that can be a really big challenge for families. So we looked at 
and that the benefits and the challenges um, that having a service dog in the home may have on spouses. Um, and we found that spouses or partners with service dogs in their home in comparison to partners that didn't have a service dog in their home yet had higher um, positive emotions as well as higher confidence and calmness. Um, and we did that um, through a study using ecological momentary assessment data, which is essentially a survey modality. It's an app on your smartphone. So um, at random times during the day, you would get kind of surveys related to mood um, and social functioning. Um, and instead of a survey where it says, you know, in the last two weeks, how have you felt about X, Y, or Z? It says, how are you feeling right now? And what that does is it kind of eliminates the survey bias and really captures those in the moment responses. So we were able to kind of see how the service dog was affecting kind of the positive affect or positive emotion of the partners. Um, and in that particular study, we didn't see any negative any changes to negative affect um, or neutral affect, which was interesting. So it was highly positive. Um, and then another study we looked at was a qualitative study. So we looked at open-ended questions from veterans and their spouses. So this was um, an analysis where we could look at kind of responses from both partners. And we found that the service dog really sets up a unique resilience process within military families. So the way that we worked through this qualitative manuscript was through something called the constant comparative analysis method. So this is what's called an emic and an edic perspective, where you read through uh, responses from your participants multiple times and you uh, create codes and different themes that are emerging across the responses. And as you're doing that, you're also kind of digging deep into the literature to look at the theories that may help to explain kind of what you're seeing um, within your responses. So in doing this process, we found, again, this resilience process that was happening. And this theory that we used uh, was called the theory of resilience and relational load. So what we saw in simple terms was that the dog was helping the veteran, which was in turn helping the spouse. So if you think about it like a bank account, the dog was helping the veteran to heal in certain things, um, which was helping the spouse because they weren't watching their partner, you know, struggle with some things. So they were adding some money to the bank account. But then dogs require work, like they have to go outside when it's raining. And there's dog hair everywhere. And there's vet bills sometimes, right? So that um, were some challenges and some conflicts that emerged. So you took money out of the bank account. But what we found was as you kind of add money in and pull money out, there's this unique process where the dog becomes kind of a member of the family as described by both the veterans and the spouses. And it is through this process of taking in and taking out and navigating these small challenges and small benefits that are happening that the veteran and spouse start to have this idea of we and togetherness as a family. So this idea of communal orientation orientation. And what this theory did was kind of explain how the service dog, the role that they had within the family in promoting resilience among the families, um, which is really fascinating um, and really important because I think a lot of times too, you know, we think about military families and we think about all the bad things um, that they're exposed to or that could happen. And military families are some of the most resilient and amazing human beings you will ever meet. Um, and they are tough and brave and courageous. And I think it's really important to not only set them up for success with interventions that directly are built for them, but also to focus on how there's opportunities for growth and resilience and, you know, movement forward after things that may not be so great have happened to them. So that work continues too. Uh, we looked at um, sleep of partners of veterans with service dogs. Um, and we found interestingly that the sleep doesn't change, which, you know, most people are like, well, that's not a finding, but it actually is because if you look at studies of pets and humans sleeping um, subjectively, humans say that when their pet sleep in bed with them or when they sleep with their pet, their sleep is better. Objectively, it's actually a lot worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> have this extreme disagreement between subjective and objective measures in a, a typical human to pet relationship, whereas with veteran partners, we don't see that. So there is no difference objectively or subjectively, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, 
you know, some theories that we have that could explain it, but it's ultimately kind of a, an open-ended question that's, you know, we have this preliminary data, it's published, um, but it's it's one of those things that's like, hmm, I think we need to dig into this a little bit further because we, we might be missing something. But it, it's really fascinating to see. But, you know, ultimately, the goal of looking at the military family was to not only include them, which is really, really important, but to also, you know, think about, okay, we're bringing this dog in for the veteran, but maybe they can have an even bigger difference or make an even bigger difference on the whole family without much change, right? So um, that's really kind of where my dissertation was. And um, I have a few additional studies coming out soon in that regard, but it's really interesting to me. And of course, giving back to um, those who give so much to us is really critical and important to me. Of course. And so the work that you have done specifically looking at at veterans and symptomology of PTSD, I know you've done some kind of more qualitative and quantitative studies. Can you talk maybe about some of the, the quantitative-based research that you've done? Sure. So uh, the quantitative-based research I have done as first author, um, it's not published yet. So it's about the cortisol awakening response, which hopefully it will be out soon. So I can't speak directly to that. But I was trained um, by Dr. Maggie O'Hare at the University of Arizona. um, And her studies have found uh, significant changes in PTSD symptomology um, when comparing veterans who have a service dog in their home and veterans who are on the wait list for a service dog. And they see decreased anxiety, decreased depression, decreased PTSD symptomology, increased quality of life in multiple measures. So the study about expectations and experiences describes kind of the benefits and drawbacks of PTSD service dogs from the perspective of the veterans, right? Which is really important. Kind of the qualitative data captures what lived experiences people are actually having. And we found that uh, although the majority of veterans reported benefits from their service dogs, the findings revealed that veterans on the wait list more frequently mentioned benefits than those who had already been placed with a service dog. Findings that the drawbacks expected from the service dog actually differed from the drawbacks experienced and kind of understanding these drawbacks and the expectations and kind of what they thought versus what actually happened is really critical for kind of shaping the intervention and letting people know kind of what to expect um, when they're expecting a service dog. Um, And with that, you know, there are ways and there's literature on hope, um, for example. So if you are hopeful about something, your mental health outcomes are actually better, which is really interesting to think about kind of how we can prepare people for these interventions um, in order to kind of make sure or make sure as much as we can, right, that they have the best chance for positive outcomes, um, which is really, really interesting. And I think very important, like you said, to to make sure that the expectation meets reality before the animal even comes into the home. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's just it's such important work because these relationships that these veterans are having with their service dogs, these people that have risked their lives for us, that they are at risk of losing their life after they come home. I think that is just it's just not discussed enough. And I think the fact that these animals are are healing them and actually saving their life is such a testament to the power of the human-animal bond and what animals do for us as, as people. And many veterans will directly tell you that, right? So yeah. many of our participants have said, you know, this dog has saved my life. I would not be here if this dog was not in my life. Wow. Like, that I have with this dog and the people I've met through this program, like I, I really wouldn't be standing here. And not only to be heard from the veterans, but you know, the spouses say the same thing. So a lot of times the, the spouses, I mentioned some drawbacks, right, with dog hair. And, you know, sometimes that there we did have some negative findings in terms of, you know, the caregiver burden increases and caregiver satisfaction decreases because, you know, the dog is now taking the place sometimes uh, for what tasks the spouse would do. So um, we also heard a lot, and this was surprising to us, um, we weren't expecting this one, was, you know, well, now I have to sleep in the guest bedroom because sharing a bed with my partner and the 70 pound lab that now lives in our home really <laughs> challenging. But, you know, even after, you know, they would share kind of these challenges, almost every single one of them said, I wouldn't trade it for the world. This dog has literally saved my partner and changed our family for the better. Most, if not all, almost all of our participants referred to their service dogs as family. Be directly as a family member or as another child or, you know, just 
welcoming them in as a family member. And I think, you know, thinking about the fact that, you know, qualitatively, we are hearing this over and over and over and over again. And the quantitative data backs it up thus far, which is really, really awesome to think about. And to, again, put resources and thought towards this, because we might have, you know, here an intervention that can really, really make a difference um, for many people. Um, and as a scientist, of course, I have to add the disclosure that, you know, it might not work for everyone, but it's, it's a start, you know, for veterans that have tried everything, or so they think this is another option. Um, that we can add to that repertoire to really understand kind of how to best serve them um, and the symptoms that they have and their individual experience with trauma and PTSD. So in your conversations with with veterans and their families, was there a particular veteran partnership with their service dog that stands out to you? Was there a particular conversation that, that sort of stuck with you through this type of research? I mean, so many, like that sounds silly that I can't bring it down to one, but I really can't. Um, There there are so many experiences that, you know, were shared with me. I mean, from going to like, from not going anywhere to going to Disneyland with their family or, you know, from, you know, I guess one spouse shared how, I guess multiple spouses shared this in a variety of different ways, but essentially, you know, we have kids and prior to the service dog, you know, my spouse couldn't really leave the house um, to support our kids. And now, you know, my partner and their service dog are coming to soccer games and they're coming to school plays and they're coming to graduations and, you know, they're just able to be present in their family's lives and be present in their own life, really, in ways that, you know, people had really written off and thought would never happen again. And it's kind of those stories of joy and hope and the partnerships that really kind of drive uh, why we do this and the potential that these interventions have to really help people, which is really, really important. So I know we don't have too much time, but I would love to to talk about a couple other things with you. So you you talked about this paper that you were involved with, the role of pets in managing uncertainty from COVID-19. I know there has been a little bit of research in this space, but I would love to talk about that paper, your findings a little bit, what animals have done for us during this, this year of, of absolute chaos. So that paper came out um, during the beginning of the pandemic. So this was our initial, okay, we're living this pandemic. Um, How are we going to cope? So at the time this paper was written, we really had no idea uh, what COVID was going to do, what it was, how we could keep ourselves safe, how we could keep our loved ones safe, um, which created significant uncertainty around the world, right? So at this point, we were like, wow, everyone is really uncertain about what's happening. And uncertainty at that time was projected to trigger uh, post-traumatic stress symptoms for many people. And managing uncertainty, there's this theory, uncertainty management theory, that suggests that essentially people typically fall into two categories. So um, some people seek out information um, and some people avoid information at all costs in order to manage their uncertainty. And we thought about how pets could potentially help people manage this uncertainty by providing social support when human social support was unavailable. So we thought that this complementary social support from pets could reduce uncertainty in individuals' lives, uh, potentially decreasing the risk for the development of these post-traumatic stress symptoms, um, which was really important. So the idea was that humans are innately drawn to living things. There's something called the biophilia hypothesis that suggests that for survival, we are innately drawn to things that are alive. Um, And in that, we are innately drawn to animals, um, which has, again, been the topic of our conversation. Um, So that's very clear. And multiple other theories um, are also at play with this in terms of um, attachment theory and social support theory. But we know from other literature that animals offer this non-judgmental social support to people. And they do that regardless of what's going on in the world, right? You know, you come home and your dog is typically, you know, wagging their tail, smiling at you at the door, um, which no matter the day you had, when you look at your dog, you can't help but smile, right? Because they're shaking so hard, you know, (laughs) they're going to knock themselves over with their tail. Um, And if they're not there, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, what'd you do? (laughs) Right? So regardless, you have have a response, which is typically positive um, when you see your dog. And it's that non 
non-judgmental social support and that idea that the animal can bring joy. Uh, we've done studies in the past that, you know, just having an animal in the room can spark joy, which is really interesting. And when you're thinking about the COVID pandemic, obviously both of those things are really important, but there's also this sense of routine. So many of us were forced to change our routines very abruptly with little warning, right? We were forced to stay home. We were not allowed to see people. You know, we had to really think about kind of every aspect of our life that we really took for granted prior to COVID. Um, and in that, our animals continued not only to be there for us when other humans potentially weren't allowed to be in the same space with us, um, but they were also continuing to live their lives. So they had routine, right? I don't know about you, but if I'm not up at six o'clock to feed my dog in the morning, I'm going to be up at 6.01 because he's going to be letting me know that it's 6.01 and she hasn't been fed yet. And, you know, they need to go outside, which was forcing us to leave our homes and go for walks. Many of us couldn't do much else aside from walk around outside, right? Because that was a safe space. And kind of beyond that and within that, you know, we have this contact comfort, right? So we can pet our animals, um, which, you know, scientifically has been shown to affect uh, stress hormone physiology. Um, and we know that there are some mental health benefits um, and physical health benefits to working with our animals. So the idea is that even though we're in this really interesting time of uncertainty and who knows what's happening next and what this is and what this means for us and for our future, we did have our pets to maintain kind of a sense of normalcy for us, especially in the context of being non-judgmental social support, but also being that sense of contact comfort when many of us were only interacting with other people through virtual um, networks or phone calls. So that, that paper was really focused kind of on a a theoretical commentary of how animals could support us during this time, um, which is really interesting to consider. You know, that was published in 2020. And this spring, um, we are going to submit a a scoping review of all the literature looking at COVID-19 and pets. So stay tuned for that, um, because that will kind of bring everything together into one document that kind of surveys the literature regarding COVID-19 and pets, which um, I'm really grateful uh, to be a part of and to kind of come to some conclusions as to, you know, the role that they truly did play based on all the research um, that's been done really in the last four years. Oh, I cannot wait to see the results of that. That's going to be very interesting because we know even, I mean, I completely agree with you. My my life was grounded because I had my dogs during COVID-19 and I still had them to go on walks with and I got to work from home with them hanging out with me while I still did my work. So it certainly helped mitigate anxiety on my end. But we also saw a ton of people go out to shelters and at kind of unprecedented rates and adopt an animal because they were home by themselves and they wanted that companionship. So I bet that study is going to capture a lot of that literature that's looking at kind of later on down the road during the pandemic, the role that these kind of new family members played in in helping their their family through. Exactly. And thinking too, you know, one of the questions I got when we started going back to work and kind of resuming normal operations was, what do I do with my dog? Like, she's going to have separation anxiety. And the question was, you know, are you going to have separation anxiety? Or is your dog going to have separation anxiety? And, you know, that, that's a real concern, right? Because we did do every part of our lives together for an extended period of time. Um, and then kind of going back. So there was a concern you know, are people going to be returning their dogs because now they're going back to work? Um, and preliminary data suggests that people did not return their dogs at the same level that they went out and got them, which is really interesting um, to think about kind of just the adoption versus return rates. Historically, that was a, a real concern. Um, and the preliminary data shows that didn't need to be as much of a concern um, as we initially anticipated. Um, so again, hopefully we'll have some more concrete results um, on that soon, but definitely an interesting way to incorporate pets into our lives or to think about how much of a role um, a pet could play in our lives. I'm really glad to hear that because anecdotally, I, I have heard differently from shelters that there is a, a big crisis right now and animals just being put back into the shelter system, shelters not being able to keep up with surrenders and those types of things. So it's nice to hear that maybe there wasn't a statistical significance, maybe certain areas were a little bit more impacted by that. But I'm glad to hear that that perhaps there wasn't just this mass return of animals after the everyone went back to work. 
Yeah. And you know, that that's preliminary data. So fingers crossed that's, that's accurate because yeah, no, you're not the first person to tell me that on like the community level. It'll be interesting to kind of dig deeper in that regard. And if that is happening, you know, how can we support everyone involved in that to kind of make it the best it can be for animals and people involved? And so I wanted to talk a little bit changing gears about your equine assisted therapy work. I believe you mentioned that being your master's mainly, were you focused on that? It was. So during my master's program, I looked at um, communication processes that were occurring um, during equine assisted services sessions. Um, So I worked with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Craig at NC State University to kind of determine, you know, what, what are we seeing in human horse interactions from the perspective of a communication scholar? So my master's is actually in communication, which when I share that with people, they are often confused. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you're never not communicating um, and communication is behavior. And there's a lot of interpersonal relationships and family dynamics within communication um, that are important. Uh, So we published two papers out of that. Um, The first was um, looking at patient-centered communication um, in equine-assisted mental health sessions. So we talked to 19 practitioners from around the world who were providing equine-assisted services uh, to different populations, mostly um, individuals who had experienced trauma. And we interviewed them and then did a qualitative analysis to kind of determine the themes um, that were most relevant. And we found a few different themes that defined uh, communication processes that were occurring. So uh, we found that equine behavior was signaling uh, human emotion regulation. Um, So a great example of that um, is one of the practitioners shared a story where um, she was working with um, a family, um, brought the family from the parking lot to the field where the horses were. She had asked them how their day was. They said, oh, it's fine. And then they stepped into the field and the horses looked up, saw them, and then galloped to the other side of the arena or the other side of the field. So clearly that is a visual display of equine behavior that signals some sort of human emotional regulation. And the practitioner shared how in that space, she had felt that fine was not so fine, but having the horses respond in the way they did made it very clear for the client and provide an opportunity for her to create a really patient-centered space to kind of discuss that further. We also found um, equine closeness and touch offered positive regard. So one practitioner shared how she was working with um, an individual who had just lost her daughter um, and they were grooming a horse. And she said, you know, they got to brush the tail and the the, uh, person just broke down in tears because it reminded her Um, of brushing her daughter's hair Um, really in that regard presented a space where she could feel safe to express her emotions and to really process through things um, but also get that contact comfort um, from the horse through that space we also saw um, another theme equine aggression disrupting human aggression cycles so equine aggression being um, typically rearing and bucking and kicking so in a herd setting if humans started to argue in sessions um, practitioners would often describe how the horses would just start bucking each other aggressively as a human concept right the horses aggression, maybe, maybe not, but our human perception of that was that they were also being aggressive and kind of potentially mirroring what the humans were doing in the horses. Um, We also saw that equine behavior prompted human reflection, which we saw that in both the examples I just shared. Um, And then equine movement unlocked human movement. So this was particularly salient um, in practitioners who had been working with um, individuals who'd experienced sexual assault. And they described how the movement of the horse really helped to unlock human movement and healing because of the kind of rhythmic um, stimulation that the horse um, provided. So that was the, the first manuscript that we looked at. Um, and then the second was how resilience uh, was communicated in equine assisted services. So I have a, I have a real interest in resilience and post-traumatic growth. Um, but here we found that um, resilience was communicated through uh, crafting normalcy, uh, new communication networks, validating negative feelings and encouraging a positive response to those negative feelings, goal-oriented talk, and then cultivating an identity of empowerment. So when participating in equine assisted services, um, we saw clients kind of going through these different processes um, and becoming more resilient as a result of kind of the communication processes that were occurring to promote this resilience um, within them. It's absolutely incredible. Like it is just hearing you speak about these these healing powers that seem to exist when handling horses. It's it's amazing to me mm-hmm. that we yeah. we're not training these horses to be um, 
you know, therapists or healers in any way. There's just this connection that exists that we have kind of captured and utilized now to heal others. It's just amazing. It's so motivating too, because, you know, both of these papers I just talked about were qualitative papers. And, you know, I had horses, I have horses, had horses, you know, there's something about a horse. Um, and if you talk to anyone that's interacted with a horse, there's just, there's something about a horse and people describe it differently. And for me as a researcher, you know, I've experienced it. I get it. Like, I know there's something about a horse, but you know, the other part of me is like, okay, I have all these anecdotes. I have this qualitative data. I have the quantitative data in many cases that says like, you know, interacting with a horse can, you know, help mental health in a variety of ways. But my question is physiologically, what is happening? Like there is something happening in our connection or communication or, you know, interaction with horses that we don't understand yet. And as a researcher, that's something that I hope in my career, I can provide some sort of explanation, even if it's very preliminary, because, you know, there is something about a horse. I mean, there's dog for other people, right? And there's something about a turtle for other people. Um, And it's really kind of understanding what is happening from a scientific perspective. And I think too, you know, as I say this, I always get the question, well, we know it. Why are you studying it? Like mm-hmm. you interact with the dog, you know. And you know, yes, we do. But I think, you know, from the science perspective, you know, science is what plays into policy and insurance companies. And if we can create data that suggests how these interventions can help people, we can make an effect on on a bigger level. Um and it's kind of understanding those mechanisms of how this is working. And it really, really motivates me um, to uh, do this work so that we can use it to help as many people um, as we can and to understand kind of what combination of these interventions are best for what type of person and what type of symptoms they have. And I think there's, you know, endless numbers of questions um, that we can ask there. So I'll be sure to be busy for a while. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. You you have job security now. There's just so much you can explore in this space. It's wonderful. It's Yeah. It's- And I I think there is something very important about putting those kind of qualitative anecdotal evidence-based measures into a kind of quantitative scientific-based study. And even though I agree, there's a lot that we do in research that's like, well, we know that already. And it's like, well, now we definitely know it's published, it's rigorous, it's scientific. Like now we have proof that we can point to. And like you said, this could be groundbreaking for policy development and really helping financially, these individuals that are are really struggling. And I think too, you know, qualitative and quantitative in in the research realm, sometimes those are uh, competing interests, right? Mm -hmm. But when they ask me kind of what research I do, you know, I do everything from grounded theory, qualitative work to stress physiology, quantitative work, which is odd. People often are confused. But for me, it's really important because, for example, if I ask you how stressed you are and you tell me that you, since working with a horse, you have been not stressed at all, you're living your best life, and then I take your saliva and your saliva says, hmm, she seems pretty stressed out, right? <laughs> or you're telling me that you're not. What's what's more important there, right? Like, how can we kind of use those things together to really understand? So if our objective and subjective findings aren't lining up, we're missing something. Mm-hmm. And we're not understanding the full um, idea of what's going on, which is, again, what motivates me. And I think it really keeps the person at the center of the work. And of course, the animal there too. But, you know, if I can't hand my work to someone who is in the trenches doing the work with the dogs, with the horses. Then as a researcher, you know, I'm not doing my job um, because what I produce, I want to be able to directly help people, you know, in the marriage of different methodologies and different ways of thinking um, that that happens. And so what is your focus now? What is your future research looking like? Where is your kind of general area? Yeah, so I mentioned a few of my projects that are upcoming, um, but my work has two central focuses for now, human-canine interactions and human-equine interactions. Um, so I'm currently working um, both on a service dog project and on a therapy dog project, as well as I'm um, on the equine side, looking at different types of equine-assisted services. I have some really exciting projects coming up, but they're not finalized yet. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. I don't anything, but I would say stay tuned um, because I'm really um, excited about that. Um, and in the future, 
Again, I hope to look um, into the miniature horses as service animals, as well as other species that we haven't looked into at all, like other farm animal species that may provide similar benefits. We just haven't asked those questions yet. Well, we'll have to have you back once you've done some more (laughs) more of this digging. (laughs) Um, And then also, we didn't get to talk about your animal soulmate, Luna, but we'll have to just do another episode with you and dig into that because I think that would be an awesome story too. No, she definitely taught me a lot about human-animal interaction and the human-animal bond, and I'd be delighted to share to share that in the future. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I love this work you're doing. I think it's so important. Please keep doing what you're doing. I think you're helping more people than you know in this space. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you and sharing <laughs> all the things that... <laughs> oh. I could nerd out with you all day. I feel this this science, like animal welfare, human animal bond. I just can't get enough. Me too. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. After recording this episode with Dr. Neeferth, I realized that I still had a couple more questions, and so I reached out to her, and she very graciously answered the remaining questions that I had. So one of the things I was really interested in is how much it actually costs to train a service dog for a veteran. And according to Dr. Neeferth, the cost of training is going to be dependent a little bit on the organization, but typically we're looking at upwards of $30,000 to train a service dog. And many organizations provide service animals to veterans at no cost, and so there's always a need for support. If you feel moved by this episode and want to donate to an organization, Dr. Neeferth provided two that she has specifically worked with, the first being Canines for Warriors, and that's the letter K and the number nine, and the second being Canine Companions, canine spelt as we normally would spell it. And the links to both of those organizations can be found in the show notes with information on how you can support them. Dr. Neeferth's website is also in the show notes with links to all the studies that she talked about in this episode. And so if you're like me and you want to read the science and go to the papers that we talked about and kind of nerd out as much as you can about this topic, you can find all of those resources available on her website. Now go give your animal soulmate a boop on the nose and I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Animal Soulmates podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a positive rating or review. Follow us on Instagram at Animal Soulmates Pod for updates and pictures of our guests with their beautiful animal soulmates. This podcast is produced by Citizens of Sound. Our theme song is Mastering the Art by Big Score Audio. Have a story that would be a good fit for the show? Send me an email at animalsoulmatespod at outlook.com. That's animalsoulmates with an S, P-O-D at outlook.com. Finally, are you thinking about adding an animal to your family? Why not consider adoption through your local animal shelter? There are plenty of dogs and cats just waiting to become someone's animal soulmate. See you next time.